We welcome you today in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is so good to gather together in worship and in praise. People of God, will you join with me in the call to worship? I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. One generation shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the Lord's thunder of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he has made. In the first letter of John, we read this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In humility and faith, then, let us confess our sin to God and words written for us all in the bulletin. O God, who occupies our thoughts and disturbs our dreams, who moves us to cry out on behalf of others, 
forgive us. Forgive us when we judge the worth of others by their circumstances. Forgive us when we feel superior to those who are poor and in need. We are impoverished in compassion and grace, and so we are the poorest of all. Help us to see, serving Lord, that we are all your children, equally loved, equally valued. Humble us, O God, that we would bow our heads and praise your holy name our whole life long. Amen. And now we continue in confession in a moment of silent prayer. Amen. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. I declare to you in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Amen. peace of Christ be with you. As the congregation prepares to share personal words of peace and greeting, I would invite our children fifth grade and younger to join their Sunday school teachers now at the back of the sanctuary, and our youth sixth grade and older will gather in the youth room. Say hello and be nice to each other. How wonderful it is to gather together and to be worshiping God and also to be celebrating the friendships that God has called us into. So welcome to all of you. There are a few things in the life of the church that I'd like to draw to our attention. These are things that will help you, some will help you to grow, some are to call you into ministry itself and to give ways for you to give. And all of them are wonderful and I, I hope you'll appreciate and take advantage of them. We are continuing our Following Jesus for Life class this morning at, um, at 11.45. And if you're a part of that, I know that you are looking forward to this class. And if you haven't yet jumped in, there are still some spots, barely, 
but we will find a spot for you. So uh, it's 11.45 and lunch is served, so come on over. Also, even as we speak, I just want to let you know, we have a new uh, fourth and fifth grade communion class going on. Susan Hohen is leading that class, and it's very exciting for us. It's something that we haven't done in a number of years, so we're really glad to be teaching some of our young people about just about the mystery that is that sacrament. And then there are a couple of ways for us to grow, for you to give, and they're so simple. And I hope you'll take note of that and kind of make this a way to make your way into mission. But tomorrow, between 1.30 and 3.30, at uh, the Interfaith Community Center, or you can speak with Mary Proctor or somebody from the mission team, and perhaps there's some... uh, uh, carpooling going on, but they're going to go down between 1.30 and 3.30 and simply make sack lunches for families and for people who are in need. And sometimes that will mean you're putting the apple juice in the bag, and sometimes it'll mean you're assembling a sandwich. But it's a really great way not only to help, because it really is a big help, but it's a way to encounter other people who are there serving as well. And also just, it's a a very humbling experience that this means so much to so many. So I encourage you to make note of that. And then if that's not easy enough, how about Super Bowl Sunday, February 4th and 11th? All you need to do is bring a can or 10 cans or a case of soup. And we'll have big blue boxes that you can put them in. And if that's not easy enough, Come on the Saturday between 10.30 and 12.30, and we'll let you just drive by and throw the cans. <laughs> and we'll, ha- we'll have a basket there. You can hoop, hoop it in, you know? And if that's not easy enough, then we've got to talk because that has to be easy enough. So, but Super Bowl Sunday, and as I told the first service, I don't want any of this brothy soup. I want chunky. I want, I want big, a lot of hearty nutrient soup. So just make sure that when you go to Costco or you go to the market or whatever, don't clean out your cupboard. Go get some soup and, um, and bring that soup. It's a wonderful way for us to give and stock the pantries of those who are, are, are in need of it. There's so many ways for, for us to give, as you can see, of our time and our talent. And we also want to give of our treasure. Because when God calls us, God doesn't call pieces of us. God calls our whole selves. So give with a generous and grateful heart.
may be seated. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, you are all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and all-loving. To you we turn our souls in these brief moments of prayer, confident through faith that you welcome our conversation with you. You are the one who made us, the one whose breath fills our lungs, the one who blesses us, the one who one day will meet us at the end of this life and then give us life that never ends with you. Through Jesus, good Father, we Learn that you want to give us every good gift of mind and body and soul. We learn that we may glorify you and enjoy the lives you've given us, and so we dare to ask you for your help. Without you, we are nothing, and we can have nothing of the life that you've designed for us, but with you, we can have all the things that are most important. So here is what is in our hearts today. Sometimes we are afraid. We are afraid of the grief that will come when a loved one dies, afraid of making bad choices that might compromise our security, afraid of changes in the world around us that threaten the fabric of our society, afraid of those whom we fear might lead our nation into chaos and decline, afraid of others who do not trust and follow you and instead seek only their own power. Lord, please help us to remember that our ultimate hope is in you and you alone. And with this knowledge, help us not to fear. Sometimes we are weak. 
It is so much easier to just go along, to maintain old habits, to let others think for us, to put off until tomorrow what we really should have done yesterday. We cannot always accomplish what we want to or need to, and our energy and will are not enough to keep up sometimes. And sometimes we are too hard on ourselves and sometimes not hard enough. But we know that you are a God who both encourages and corrects us, and it is all because you love us. So help us to be strong in the power of your might and in the hope that every day you will lead us to become who we truly can be. Sometimes we are simply too concerned about ourselves. All around us are people who need your love, and we are the ones whom you call to express it. Help us to love others with our words, with our gifts, with our attention, with our affirmation, with our respect, with our simple acknowledgement that because you love us, we should therefore love others. O oh Lord, please take these few words, these inadequate words, these fleeting moments of worship and prayer, and hear in them our plea to you to help us love you more dearly and follow you more nearly today and tomorrow and for all the tomorrows to come. And then, finally, because of your mercy, hear us in these words that you gave us to say as we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
The scripture today is a reading from the book of the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear what the Lord says. Rise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what have you wearied? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what King Balak of Moab devised, what Bulam, son of Beor, answered him, and what happened when Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The word of the Lord. Mr. Dennis Krogan was my English, American literature, and film studies teacher when I was in high school at Brawley Union High School. He was also our yearbook advisor. He was funny and sarcastic and quirky and very, very homely. And I absolutely adored him. I was first introduced to the music of Judy Collins and Paul Williams and the Rolling Stones in his class. <laughs> he would play the whale song, Farewell to Terwathi by Judy, while we took tests. And we dissected popular rock and roll to understand poetry and metaphor and parable. I vividly remember an epic debate with my friend Abdelardo Eros on the meaning of the lyrics from the stone song, Ruby Tuesday. And I stand by what I interpreted to this day. Mr. Krogan was the butt of jokes among the high school meanies, but he carried on with such an aplomb that at the time I couldn't quite understand. 
As I matured and I looked back, I began to, uh, at my experience with this dedicated teacher, I began to realize what his greatest gift was. He was the most humble person that I have ever met. He was really a scholar stuck down in Brawley, California. He had graduated from NYU and a renaissance man of sorts, and, and yet he treated us as though we were the most interesting, intelligent, and creative people in the world. And I have never forgotten him or the lessons that I learned from him. His way of teaching was more midwife than obstetrician. <laughs> Mr. Krogan, helped us safely give birth to our ideas and our questions and a voice for our teenage existential angst. He died in 2019, and let me tell you, the outpouring from his former students was monumental. His service was jammed with all of us, and the celebration was so eloquent. You see, that is the gift of the humble. They lift us up and they center us. They're more curious than they are judgmental. They bring comfort and reason and perspective when they remind us that our story, albeit important, is one among all the other important human stories. And like a mosaic of beautiful stones, those stories, when brought together, create the larger story in which all of us belong together. With God pulsing at the center of that story and holding all things together, including us. We've been leaning into scriptures that are important for the Christian lifescape these past few Sundays. And, and, and these things that speak to us of foundational principles that we're calling the pillars of faith, those life values that, that move us towards God and towards a deepened relationship, not just with each other and God, but also even with ourselves. We've explored the pillars of love and service and hope, and all of them, we've been provided with tools for this complex enterprise of living life. Today we explore humility, and humility is like the others in the significance that it holds in the whole experience of spiritual formation. But humility is unique in that it is less about what we do, and it is more about the spirit, the perspective, the attitude, with which we approach life, with which we approach our purpose, with which we approach our connection to each other and to the created world around us. Humility, in essence, is seeing ourselves and the world around us through the eyes of God, the way God sees us, the way God sees the world. And in our humility, we are provided with lenses that declare the worth of the other, the worth of the person sitting next to us and the worth, the worth of the person who's begging and the, and the worth of the person who's dying and the worth of the person that we don't know. 
In our humility, we are provided with the lens that views creation as God's blessing and gift to care for and cherish, not to squander. And in our humility, we are provided with a lens, and this is the most critical lens, in which we acknowledge that we cannot do life on our own. We are dependent on God. We cannot make a step without God, and we fail and we needlessly suffer when we try to go out on our own because we're not on our own. You know, one of the reasons that we engage in, in corporate confession is to remind ourselves of our need for God and to remind ourselves of our humanness. And in our humanness, we need God. We just can't do it without God. In our text today, a timeless question is raised. What is God's will? And as we explore that question, we begin to understand that it's a question that has to be approached and has to be addressed from a place of sacred humility. That peace of being made in God's image, God, God's humility, if you will, that we often neglect or resent or even resist. In the 8th century B.C., the prophet Micah asked a similar question. He asked this question, what does the Lord require? And the response given remains at the heart of a right relationship with God, with humankind, and with all other communities of life on the planet. In eight verses, the poet describes the experience of a long-suffering God who remains faithful to an unfaithful people for whom the prophet makes intercession. The setting for this text is a courtroom. And in verses 1 and 2, the poet makes clear that God has a controversy with the people, or God is going to contend with them. And what we might expect from this God, who is almighty and creator of all things, in this courtroom with these creatures that God has created. We might expect an expression of righteous anger on the part of God. I have told you, just like a parent, I have told you once, I've told you twice, I've told you three times how it's going to be. When are you going to listen? That's what we might expect. As, but as the case unfolds, the words of heartfelt bewilderment and plea are proclaimed. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In what way have I wearied you? Answer me. You see, the people seem to have forgotten their story. And in doing so, they have forgotten their saving God. When we forget or neglect our story, and our story being the sacrificial love of a God who empties the divine self and is born in innocence in the poorest of circumstances. And our story is about a God who preaches the liberation for all and that we are the keepers of all God's children and the stewards of all God's creation. 
And when we forget that our story is the story of the saving death of a risen Savior, and that our story, well, when we forget who our God is, and what our God has done, and who we are to our God, and what our God's purpose is for us, when we forget our story, we fall. We fall out of relationship with God. And when we are out of relationship, out of a right relationship with God, then there is no way possible for us to have a right relationship with each other. And to be honest with you, there's no way to have a right relationship even with yourself. When you have a relationship that's shattered with God, Our wholeness, when we're out of a right relationship with God, our wholeness is, is completely fractured. We are a dismembered people. We are no longer centered on or in God, but on ourselves. And this is where Israel found itself in this text. Throughout Israel's history, God has always remembered brought them back to wholeness, the people and the covenant God made with them. If you've been a part of our Exodus classes at all, the men or the women's or or over at La Costa Glen, you know that this covenant that God started with human beings that is recorded in scripture is an ongoing covenant that God never fails to, to address. This unfolding covenant that God is, is true and loyal to God has always remembered the people and the covenant made with them. And the people have been encouraged and pressed and spurred on time and time again. And and vast liturgies of Passover and the liturgies that we enjoy of baptism and the Lord's Supper, all of these things to help us remember who God is, what God has done, and who we are to God to remember the acts of God in all God's wondrous ways. Now God calls on the people in this text to remember once again. And this remembering will be their starting point back to a right relationship. That's where it begins. When, our, when we come to realize we can't do it on our own and we begin to remember who we are to God, how we were created, what we were created for. And then we are remembered. And it brings us back into a wholeness. Verses 6 and 7 are a response. A response to God's questions and plea and a demand for an answer. And here the poet features the prophet Micah in a, in, a, in a very different place than we heard at the very beginning of these scriptures. Here we hear Micah humbled, self-reflective, contrite, as he represents his people who still have not come before the Lord. And Micah raises three soul-searching questions that are aimed at atonement. And in raising these questions in the way he does, he leads the reader and the hearer 
to the surprising place of God's desires, the place that the people of that time would not have expected a God to be. Each of Micah's questions reflects a willingness to offer some sort of sacrifice. And the hyperbole grows with each time he offers it, with something more, something vast, culminating in the hyperbole to offer to sacrifice one's firstborn if that pleases the Lord. The prophet is pressing and goading the people by overstating the demands of God. When God, honestly, in reality, friends, God doesn't want any of these sacrifices. God doesn't want their burnt offerings. God doesn't want their firstborn. God doesn't want any of that. God desires more than empty words or blustering promises. That's the fact of it. God desires justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly. God desires justice that is measured by how well the most vulnerable among us fares in our community. I would not want to be pushed to that test today. How well those least among us are doing. It's, it's God desires a loyal love. It's, it's a word in Hebrew that's, that's chesed. It's commensurate with the kind of, it's a loyal love. That's not just a, a feeling love, but it's a love that is committed. And God, it, it, and God wants and expects us to have that kind of loyal love, the kind of love he has towards Israel and towards us. And a careful walking, hahala, in one's own ethical life. What does that mean? It means God expects us to walk the talk. That's basically what he's saying. Micah is challenging us to let our words and our actions be in alignment. Don't let our words be, be all just flowing out of our lips and our hands doing nothing to humble ourselves to the will of God, to walk the talk. God is categorically stating that it is not enough to talk about love or justice or kindness or humility. Anyone, anyone can spout peace and goodwill for their fellow human while picking the pocket. And anyone can spout those good things while stealing their dignity or anyone can spout honesty and love and care while building a million barriers to serve themselves and imprison the poor. And anyone can spout peace and goodwill for their fellow human and still ignore their pain by being satisfied that we've done enough because we feel guilt and shame and outrage, outrage on their behalf but we haven't lifted a finger to help. But this is not the way of God. Micah points that out in verse 8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you. And this is shocking. This is shocking because all the other gods of those times required 
the burnt offerings and required the best and required the first fruits and required all of these things. But what does this God require of you? What does it look like to meet someone who lives into these words? What does it feel like to walk with someone who loves people so deeply that they would lay down their life, literally, lay down their life for them? What happens when a person does justice, when they count it a privilege to serve, when the least of these are not the least loved or least served? What kind of person would sit with the low life and eat with the wretched? What type would give up all their own comforts and any hope of getting ahead and, and saving for a rainy day, all hopes of future security and, and insurance to give you the message of hope and truth? What kind of person would do that? Who would, who would reframe the definition for success from God's perspective and challenge the rich with the burden of responsibility that they must carry? Who would walk this path for you and for me? And who would ask you and me to walk this path? And every Christian heart knows and sees that the road that Micah is describing is the road that Jesus walked. And that the path that Jesus walked is the path that's set before every single person who will follow Jesus. And we know, we know that we cannot walk this path on our own. We know that we must have God every step of the way. And you know what? We have to have each other. And because we know that, it is a path that is already paved with humility and shaded by mercy. It is a path that leads straight to the heart of God. He has told you, O oh mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Stand with me and let us affirm our faith in words taken from the letter to the Philippians. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to love kindness and to do justice and to walk humbly with your God. That's all we need to do. Let's leave this place and be the church in the world. And may the love of God and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ and the intimate fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. All of God's people said together, Amen. Amen.